Amen. You may be seated, and here from this centerfold, you need to turn your bulletin upside down and just flip over one page from the centerfold, and you will find on page 11 there today's reading from Luke's Gospel for our sermon in chapter 20. Let's hear together God's Word. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the Gospel, The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do then? Do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your spirit's work among us now, Father, as we hear this. Remarkable passage in Jesus' good name. Amen. So one of the things that can help you quite a lot as you read your Bibles is just to notice 
where things happen. Place in the Bible is not accidental. It really matters quite a lot. And so I'd like to ask you guys, you know now we are, we've reached kind of the climax of Luke's gospel. Um, everything's been kind of moving toward this moment, this showdown, if you like, where Jesus, the king, has finally arrived in the royal city. He's finally gotten, after all kinds of chapters, he's gotten to Jerusalem. Now the real thing we've been waiting for is going to happen. And I want to ask you guys this question. Why does the action here happen in the temple? Why does that place matter? Well, you know the answer. Think about the world at this time. Israel's temple is the place it is the only place where heaven and earth are reunited, where God, the God of heaven, and people on earth can meet and be reunited in fellowship. Now, there's been, of course, in the Bible, a series of places like this, going all the way back, actually, to Eden, really, up on a mountaintop, the Garden Temple, you know. There's been a bunch of these kind of places, but now it's this temple. But there has been a persistent problem, you also recall, in all of these various meeting places between heaven and earth. God and man, and that problem has been that from Eden, we earth dwellers really want to reverse the relationship of heaven and earth, don't we? That's always been the problem. We really want to reverse the relationship of heaven and earth. We want God to be a tenant, preferably a profitable, blessing, paying tenant in our world, right? God, come make our life better. Be our tenant, we have refused to acknowledge that, in fact, he is the owner, the landlord. We hold everything, starting with our very existence, from him. And we have just been resistant to that since Eden. Well, now, this is Israel, brothers and sisters. This is the people of God in this temple. And if God's people will not acknowledge the rule of heaven, the landlordship of God, what on earth hope could there be for the rest of the world to do that? And so this is a moment of reckoning. God in flesh is here to meet with his people. And as the text opens, Jesus has done something extremely disruptive. Remember from the last chapter, he disrupted the sacrifice system by driving out all the people that exchanged the money that allowed people to buy sacrifices. So the entire sacrifice system in this temple has kind of been put on pause because he started throwing tables and driving people out of the temple. And he has replaced all that with his teaching. He centralized himself in this giant temple as the teacher that people need to listen to. This is a presumptuous intrusion into this temple system. And it provokes, you'll notice here, a direct challenge to Jesus' authority in verse 2 a direct challenge to his authority. And I just want to take a moment with a direct challenge and then see what happens after the direct challenge, secondly. But first, in the first 19 verses, the direct challenge. So the, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, they come to Jesus, they basically say, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to do this kind of thing? And on the surface, that's actually not a bad question. On the surface, there's nothing wrong with those who've been given the task of guarding the temple to guard the temple and find out, you know, this could just be priests doing their job. If somebody walked in here today and said, you know, Ben, shut up, sit down, I'm taking over, I'm now going to be the one who speaks here with authority, I hope one of you would, or two of you would check on credentials a little bit. You know, you just don't walk in and take over the way Jesus has done. So you could say, on one hand, that they're doing their job, but we know they're not because we've read the whole gospel. And it is crystal clear by now that these elders, these rulers, they absolutely know that Jesus wields heavenly power and authority. He does things only God can do. This is not a secret. 
They have known this for a long time. The problem is that they just are not prepared to acknowledge his heavenly power and authority. They're absolutely not prepared to bow down to it. So the issue is not actually here whether Jesus has made it sufficiently clear that he represents the God of heaven. He has totally made it sufficiently clear. But the issue is whether these rulers are prepared to respond to Jesus accordingly, and they are, of course, not. Which is why Jesus, instead of taking the bait, I mean, he's just brilliant in this text, but instead of taking the debate, he offers in verse 3 an exchange of questions. He says, I'm not going to answer that directly. I'm going to ask you guys a question. If you tell me the answer, then I can answer you. And in this question, as he asks about John's baptism, so was that from heaven or earth? He is exposing here in that question why these elders, these church leaders, are disqualified to question his authority. And the reason they're disqualified to question his authority is because they don't want an answer. They don't want an answer. They have persistently refused to listen to anyone God has sent. That's not a problem that started with Jesus. So let's back up to John, Jesus says. From heaven, speaking for God, or just a man doing his thing? Because the, the, you remember from this earlier, from, you remember this from earlier in the gospel, the response that these rulers had to John showed that they have no intention, they have never had any intention of hearing a voice speak to them from heaven. A word that says, you need to repent. A word that says, I'm going to unsettle your status and bring you down and put you at my feet and call you to account. They're, they're not, that's not a word they're prepared to hear from John or Jesus or anybody else. They will not acknowledge any authority higher than their own. And we're told in verse 6, the only reason they will not just go public about that is because they fear the people. Because the people, you know, these stupid religious people, they you know, always think there's a voice from heaven. They believe John, they believe Jesus, you know, they, so they just... They fear being attacked by the people. They fear losing their own credibility. That's the only reason they will not just flat out say, John was nothing more than a man speaking his mind, and neither Jesus or you. That's the only thing keeping them from saying that. So Jesus kind of unmasks that fundamental problem. You, you have an issue with God's authority that predates me. But then you'll notice in verse 9, so having effectively parried his opponent's challenge, because they just can't answer the question, and so he says, fine, I'm not going to tell you but where my authority comes from either. Not that you'd really want to know. But then in verse 9, Jesus, now you notice he goes on the offensive, and he starts telling this parable. And it's interesting, you know, there are four, ep, uh, four, kind of four episodes in the parable, servant, 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 son. And it's interesting that this parallels the earlier uh, parable of the, the four soils, remember, that we call the parable of the sower, where you had kind of rejecting soil, rejecting soil, rejecting soil, and then, you know, the good soil it received, the word. Um, and, you know, N.T. Wright, I think, is onto something when he says that that parable of the soils kind of reflects Israel's history. You know, God sends, God sends, God sends, but now he's sending his son, and now's the time to bear fruit. Now's the time to be good soil. But you notice here that fourfold installment, it ends very badly. Because whereas in the parable of the soils, the fourth soil was good soil that received the word, what happens when this owner sends the fourth summons to give me the fruit of my vineyard? Well, that fourth sending results in murder of the son, of the owner. Now, you remember why Jesus tells parables? We were told earlier, he tells people in Israel parables because he doesn't want them to understand. He's actually blinding them to truth by telling them, by hiding things in parables. But what's interesting about this parable is that it's, it's pretty transparent. Everybody gets it. The, 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 the people listening in verse 16 are so shocked 
When Jesus says, the owner's going to come take this vineyard away from these people and give it to somebody else, they, they know exactly what this means. <laughs> You're telling us that God's going to take the vineyard of Israel away from these rulers and give it to others, and they just, they're, they're scandalized. Like, they use a very strong expression, surely not. Kind of like, God forbid, Jesus. <laughs> You're, say, this is the, you're saying this is the undoing of Israel's entire history, their entire reason for existing. And it's, you see it too over in verses 19 and 20. The scribes, the rulers, the chief priests, they know exactly who Jesus is talking about. We are the bad tenants. That's who he's talking about, and they hate him. They just hate him. So everyone gets what the parable means, or do they? they do they really? Because actually there is something that's veiled in this parable. What is veiled in the parable is not what the parable says about Israel's rulers. That everybody gets. What remains behind the veil is what this parable says about Jesus. Because Jesus interprets the parable in verses 17 and 18, and he directly, in verse 17, links the murdered son with the Psalm 118 cornerstone. He quotes Psalm 118, and he says, let's talk about the parable. You all know there was going to be this stone that is rejected, but God makes that stone the cornerstone of a new thing that he's building. And then in verse 18, he says, now let me say something that Psalm 118 didn't say. That stone that God is going to set up that was rejected but becomes the cornerstone, you fall on that thing, it's gonna, you're going to be broken. That thing falls on you with striking force. It's going to grind you to powder. Now step back from this and think about it. What he's saying in verse 18 is this murdered son, this rejected cornerstone, who, this rejected stone who becomes the cornerstone, it is going to strike with crushing force. Now you Bible scholars tell me, where else in the Bible does a stone strike with crushing force? break things in pieces, and then become the foundation of a new thing that God is building. Somebody tell me. Y'all are awesome. Daniel 2, this little stone strikes the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's image, blows the whole thing to chaff, and becomes a little a mountain that fills the entire world. Now, what's really crazy, you want a brain twister, back in Daniel's prophecies, so here in this parable, the owner's murdered son ends up being a stone. But in Daniel's prophecies, it's actually the other way around because in chapter 2, you have this stone and it crushes these four metal kingdoms. But then five chapters later in Daniel 7, those, fo those four uh, metal kingdoms become four beast kingdoms. And we are told when the Ancient of Days sits on his throne, the dominion of those four beast kingdoms is taken away and given to whom? A son of man. It turns out in Daniel that the stone is a son. And this parable, therefore, is not ultimately about the rulers of Israel, but about Jesus. He's telling Israel in behind the veil that the end of this story is not the son's death. It's not the son's murder. The end of this story is actually going to be the establishment of his reign and the sweeping away of all of his opponents. That's the actual end of the story. And I want to ask you guys a question as we turn the corner now to the second half. Is that good news? Is that good news? That this son is going to become the king, the cornerstone, and all that opposes him will be swept away and destroyed. Well, as we turn the corner now to the second half, keep Daniel in mind. 
Because having looked at the direct challenge in verses 1 through 19, I'd like now in verses 20 through 40 to look at two traps. Two traps. His enemies don't like this. What they've understood of this peril makes them really mad. And one symptom of our problem with God's authority is hostility when we are confronted about our problem with God's authority. You notice that? One way you can tell people have a problem with God's authority is when you tell them they have a problem with God's authority, they hate you. It is, it is the, tr- the, the fact, it is the case at times that when people hear that Jesus is Lord and you're not, that God is a landlord and you are tenants in his world, that produces hatred, not a joyful response to good news. And that's what happens here. These scribes, chief priests, rulers, and elders, they are not obviously able to directly assert their authority against Jesus. That failed quite miserably. And so they pivot here, and they try to get Jesus to trap himself. They try to get him to undermine his own authority and credibility, and they present him with two problems, a political problem and a theological problem. Now, I want you to notice something before we talk about the problems. I want you to notice as we go through this, the genius of Jesus' response to these two traps is that he is able to show that these two problems they put before him are problems only if the world is as these rulers believe it is. These are problems only if these people are in fact the landlords. And God is not the great king that he says he is. And Jesus is not his great son who brings his kingdom as Jesus says he is. So if the gospel is not true, then these are real problems. If the gospel of the kingdom is true, turns out these are not problems. So look at the problems. Taxes are a problem, yes? Come on, you are Long Islanders. You are, I cannot get an amen ever. Can we, do we have to pay taxes to Rome, Jesus? That's the political problem they, they throw in front of him. Now, behind that practical question, do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? There is actually a far deeper issue. American evangelicals, I've noticed a lot in the last five years especially, really like to identify their political favorites with God's kingdom and really like to identify their political disfavorites with God's enemies. Sometimes when I hear evangelical Christians in America say, we should pray against God's enemies, I wonder if what you're really saying is we should pray against those people I disagree with politically. But, so much for American evangelicals, the Jews in Jesus' time actually have biblical warrant for that. Because it was widely understood, this wasn't unanimous, but it was, it was widely understood in Jesus' time that the Roman occupation of Israel was a continuation of Israel's exile under those beast kingdoms that Daniel talked about. Obviously, the initial exile of Israel was under Babylon, right? But then a bunch of them came home, but the problem was they were still under the heel of Medo-Persia and later under the heel of Greeks, especially the Seleucid, the Syrian Greeks, and then eventually they are obviously in Jesus' time occupied by Rome, and so there was this very strong sense in Israel, we still have an exile problem, like half a millennium after God said we're supposed to be relieved from exile, and so they look at Rome, they see a beast from Daniel. And so what they're really saying to Jesus is less about taxes here, they really are saying, so Jesus, for or against the beast, and this is really crafty, because if Jesus legitimizes the beast and says, yeah, y'all pay your taxes, it's going to obliterate his credibility with his audience. 
Or if he encourages insubordination to the beast and says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they can just feed him to the beast. So this is good. They've got him. This is a real problem. And Jesus' response, as you know, is masterful. He says, bring me a denarius, bring me a coin. You all tell me, whose image is this and whose inscription? Now, the image was of Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar of the time. Guess what the inscription said on that coin? Tiberius Caesar, quote, son of the divine and Pontifex Maximus, the most high priest. The point of that inscription on the stone was this, as Nicholas Perrin puts it. This was the point. As Rome's great high priest and son of the God, son of the gods, the emperor served as the sole mediator between the human and the divine. This inscription is nothing less than a demand for worship of the emperor. Now, again, you're hearing here, I hope, echoes of Daniel. Because back in Daniel, again, a half millennium earlier, Daniel and his friends were able to serve fruitfully in their empire context. They were able to love their neighbor right on up to honoring the emperor. I mean, Daniel had a good relationship with Nebuchadnezzar of all people. They were able to serve and be faithful and fruitful in that empire context precisely because they refused to bow down to any image or inscription that demanded worship. That's why they were able to bless the empire, because they refused from day one to worship these kings, worship this empire, worship the, their, their images, their inscriptions, their gods. And God stood with them in this, didn't he? God nullified Nebuchadnezzar's demand that his image be worshipped in the fiery furnace. God nullified Darius's inscription that all peoples must pray to him alone. He nullified that in the lion's den. When Belshazzar praised Babylon's gods, a divine inscription from God's own hand on the wall of his party scene told God's decree the empire's been finished by the Most High. And now, as this story is here before us in the Gospels, God is nullifying yet another image, yet another inscription of yet another emperor whose name is Tiberius by the fact that the Son of the Most High stands right there in their presence as the Lord of heaven and earth who alone is to be worshipped and the rulers are completely blind to the presence of this true king. That is the real issue they need to come to terms with. Not whether to pay taxes to, 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 to Tiberius, but whom they will worship. And in a way, what Jesus says when he says, give to Tiberius that which is Tiberius's, but give to God that which is God's. What he's really saying is, listen, in this moment, people, taxation is a distraction. Your political issues are a distraction from the real political issue. When you look at Rome through the eyes of God's kingdom, when you look at Rome in light of who Jesus is, if you can, what do you see? Do you know what the believers in Jesus saw when they looked at Rome and Tiberias? They saw chaff that the wind drives away. Rome's days of ruling and taxing are numbered. And it's an interesting thing in political situations. People that are just so invested in perpetuating a regime or an empire, or on the other hand, people that are so invested in overthrowing a regime or an empire, they share something in common. The, 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 the fans and the detractors, they all share in common this vastly outsized view of the empire. It's such a big deal. 
But you know, those of us who know God's kingdom plan for his kingdom, we expect kings to rise and fall, nations to rise and fall, powers, empires, policies to rise and fall, and so we're just not really all that worked up about this stuff because our worship and our allegiance lie elsewhere. And like Daniel and his friends, we can just keep on worshiping God fearlessly. We can honor lawful authorities. We can love our neighbors because emperors come and go. And Jesus says, look, give to, Caesar, give to Caesar what's properly Caesar's, but the Lord our God is one. Who is? I ask you today, who is the great king over all the earth? Who is his image? Who is his likeness? Who is his son? Who is his cornerstone? Who is the Pontifex Maximus in 2023? Those are the real questions. And when you know the answer to those questions, these political things just fall into place. They're just not really that big of a problem. Now, even stupider than trying to trap Jesus politically is trying to trap him theologically. And the Sadducees are pretty impressed by what he just did to the, to the Pharisees, so they step in and they say, well, we, we've got a question for you, Jesus. They know he believes in the resurrection, and so they try to reduce that belief to absurdity with their crazy little story here. They try to subvert his credibility, because like, what's he going to say to this story about the seven men and the poor girl who is all of their wife, well, she's wife to all of them, no kids, so in the resurrection, Jesus, we got a problem. You know, who's, who's gonna, who, who gets the girl? And Jesus, again, shows this is not a problem if you understand the kingdom of God. And he draws on the Jews' well-known division of history. We've talked about this before. The Jews divided history into two ages, right? Before the Messiah and after the Messiah. And Jesus pulls that two-age thing forward here. And he shows a crucial difference between the world before the Messiah and the world after Messiah comes. And he says, in this age... In this age, because they're quoting here from Moses, right? This is from the law of Moses. It was called leveret marriage, right? Man dies, no kids. His name will vanish. His land inheritance will vanish. He has no children who can carry on his name and, and can continue to have his name attached to the piece of land that he owns. And so his brother needs to take his wife and raise up a child that can inherit and carry on his name in that land. That was the provision in Moses. And Jesus says, you know, that, that is how it works in this age before Messiah. In this age before Messiah, the, the, the giant dominating problem is Adam's sin and death. People are constantly dying because Adam. And it makes perfect sense in this age, the sons of this age. They, they, you know, God, even God's people in Israel who are under this rule of sin and death, they, they need to marry and reproduce because if they do not marry and reproduce, all the seed, the holy seed that God promised to Abraham is eventually going to be extinct. And if there's no seed, they can't keep, you know, inheriting the land that God promised to Abraham either. And so the entire inheritance of God's people means you better marry and be given in marriage and have kids so we can not go extinct and have the whole plan of God for his people extinguished by death. Leveret marriage in Moses' law was a way of trying to circumvent death's power and, can, and preserve life in the midst of death. And Jesus says, well, that's how it is when death reigns. <laughs> but it won't reign forever. When Messiah brings the kingdom of God and the life-breathing spirit of God that gives life and breath to all things, there's not going to be any need whatsoever to try to stave off extinction of our life in God's land. 
I mean, think about what he says about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there in verses 37 and 38. Do you think, I mean, he says, you know, we all know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still living, even though they've died, because God says he's their God. You think Abraham and Sarah, wherever they are now, and Isaac and Rebekah, wherever they are now, and Jacob and Leah and Rachel, wherever they are now in the presence of the Lord, are sitting around sweating over barren wombs and the fact that they might not be able to have children and, you know, the, the whole plan of God might be extinguished by death. You think that worries them at all? as they experience the resurrection life of God? This whole scenario that the Sadducees put before Jesus is just dominated by a fear of loss. We have no children to carry on. Who's gonna get the woman? You know, you know here we are in the resurrection, and we got one girl and seven guys, and you know, who's gonna get the girl? It's just a fear of loss just pervades this story. But the people that Messiah raises from the dead, they don't have to cheat mortality anymore. Why do the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, Jesus says. In verse 36, be, in, in the age to come, they, they don't have to marry or be given in marriage because they're immortal. Because death is dead. They're not gonna be sitting around in the resurrection running problem scenarios about the fact that, well, we, just, we, didn't, we didn't cheat death. You know, we didn't have, we, didn't have we, we couldn't produce life. So I guess we kind of lose out in the resurrection. That's just not how the resurrection works. In that world, they have life that is as deathless as the life of the angels. He's not saying we're gonna be, uh, we're not gonna have gender or anything like that. He's just saying you are going to be like angels in the sense that you cannot die. The angels cannot die and neither can you in that resurrection. You'll be like angels, sons of the resurrection. And so as those who are immortal in the presence of God, you will only ever expect to receive more and more life, more and more blessedness, no fear of loss whatsoever. That's what the kingdom does. And so the Sadducees' desperate scenario, it just melts before the power of the resurrection. They are trying to take the dynamics of a death-stricken world and apply those dynamics in a world without death. And it just simply doesn't work. God's kingdom brings life. And you and I actually cannot even imagine the possibilities of a deathless life, or what Peter calls an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and fades not away. That's what the kingdom brings. And again, as I close, let me just stress again, these problems in both of these traps, they arise in the minds of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they simply do not appreciate the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And if they could ever understand what is happening before them as God has sent his son to die and be raised and raise his people from the dead, if they could ever grasp that, these problems would just disappear. Because God's rule opens up heavenly possibilities for liberation and for life that are just beyond the grasp of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so I want to ask you guys as we, as we wrap up here, do you ever find, I know I do, do you ever find yourself as God's people getting really, really hung up on all the stuff that's happening among earthly powers in our time? Or maybe in your own personal life getting really hung up over experiences of barrenness Experiences of decay or fear of decay. Experiences of loss or fear of loss. A sense of the shortness of time 
Do these things trouble you about your own life or about the lives of those you love? You, you look at what sin can do and what death can do, and does it rattle you sometimes? Maybe not in absurd scenarios like these Sadducees, but it can rattle us. And whether it's kind of the outward-facing, oh, Rome, or inward-facing, oh, death. Beloved, this is not just preacher talk. We need to stand before our king. We need to stand before our king. And we need to hear again the overwhelmingly good news, you are not your own. This parable of the tenants tells us that the kingdom of your king cannot be thwarted even by his own murder. This interaction about Roman taxation tells us that before your king, all earthly powers are as nothing. This interaction with the Pharisees tells you that you have been raised with Christ. You cannot die because you have the Son of God. And so you can now live without fear of any loss that sticks, any decay that sticks. You are fearless in the face even of death itself because it is a defeated enemy. And so the posture of those who understand the kingdom, whether it's outward issues or inward issues, we stand before our king and we worship him and him alone. We trust him and him alone. We serve him and him alone. And we find rest for our souls. God grant it. Amen. Lead us in this, our Father, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.